our thank you to Pendax Medical for sponsoring today's Endoscopy News podcast. This week we have a chat with Neil Shepherd, Professor of GI Pathology at Gloucester, on the topic of serrated polyps. We joined the conversation when I'm expressing relief that the adenoma detection rate is becoming a thing of the past. We no longer need to spend weeks correlating endoscopy with histology. Now, of course, we will continue to do this to get better at our diagnostic skills and to make sure that uh, no malignant polyps are forgotten about, I guess. We've heard from Gloucester for many years that what you need to do is chase after the histology of every polyp you removed to calculate your adenoma detection rate, which takes, yeah. I think it leads to remove about 2,000 polyps a year. So that's that's hundreds of hours spent. But now we don't need yeah. to, because it doesn't really matter if the adenoma is serrated. They're yeah. all polyps. In our minds, serrated pathology has, has taken over, and uh, uh, cleverer people than me recognize that 25% probably of all colorectal cancers uh, are progressing down the serrated neoplasia pathway. Uh, and then we have this interesting phenomenon that there is two main types, but probably more. One that is predominantly right-sided, uh, that is going down, if you like, the sessile serrated neoplasia pathway. And, then the, uh, and that is associated with particular molecular fingerprints, most notably BRAF uh, mutation. Uh, and then on the uh, left side, we have probably hyperplastic polyps becoming becoming something like sessile serrated lesions, but also, and we definitely see evidence of this pathologically, going directly to the so-called traditional serrated adenoma and accounting for these left-sided aggressive colorectal cancers that have a serrated phenotype, but not necessarily be RAF mutated. They're more RAS mutated. I was talking for a very eminent pathologist who's a good mate of mine from London, won't mention his name. Uh, and he says he's utterly influenced by the location of the polyp, that if it's serrated and non-displastic and on the right side, he'll call it an SSL. And if it's in the sigmoid colon or rectum, he'll call it a hyperplastic polyp, particularly if it's small. And I have a lot of sympathy with that. So if you go to our current gospel, which is the WHO textbook 2019, we're allowed to make the diagnosis of sessile serrated lesion if we see one crypt that fulfills the criteria for it. So this really muddies the pitch because we uh, we have changing uh, definitions. And if I go back to my right and left disease and say that sessile serrated lesions are particularly a right-sided phenomenon, if we now change the definition and say you just have to see one slightly dodgy crypt, then a two millimeter rectal hyperplastic polyp will get called a sessile serrated lesion because somebody sees a little, you know, T or an L or, or anchor or hook or whatever we call it. So the changes in definition are definitely querying the pitch. Uh, but I still firmly believe that in terms of our assessment, uh, you must take notice of sight because sight is you know, it, there's no doubt that the it's the right-sided disease is all about BRAF mutations, sessile serrated lesions, and then as they progress towards serrated carcinoma, you then get microsatellite instability, you get hypermethylation of MLH1. That's part of the molecular progression, if you like, uh, to serrated cancer on the 
right side. Bjorn, you, 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 you were talking about Jeremy Jaff. Jeremy, of course, was a world expert on this serrated disease. I'd just like to say that in 1983, he wrote a leading article in The Lancet suggesting that what were called metaplastic polyps then, and then we now call hyperplastic polyps, were preneoplastic. I would say you particularly see them in old aged people, sure, but I still think they're preneoplastic. So a nice way of thinking about serrated pathology in general is to think that there are these steps. So let's go back to our traditional right side and left side. Right side, uh, normal to something that's probably like a hyperplastic polyp through sessile serrated lesion, through sessile serrated lesion with dysplasia to serrated cancer. And say, I would suggest that most of those steps happen in sort of an intermediate time. Uh, what did you mean by intermediate well, time? Well, you know, a few years, perhaps. But particularly on the left side, if we're talking normal to hyperplastic polyp to TSA to cancer, then I think if you say normal to uh, hyperplastic polyp probably takes quite a long while because we see these lesions predominantly in older people. Then hyperplastic polyp to TSA also takes a long time. So we're quite happy to leave hyperplastic polyps in older people because we know they'll probably die of something else. But TSA to cancer progressed quickly. And so we worry about those and they are associated much more commonly with malignancy. I just think that's a nice way of looking at the whole concept and not just dismissing hyperplastic polyp as, as something uh, what, what did you say in your notes? The cells are too slow to travel up the crypt. Uh, and, and people use a more scientific term for it and talk about uh, anoikis. I have to look it up. What does that mean? Well, it, it means exactly what I said, I think, Neil. It means that they're too slow to well, move up the crypt. Well, it means not at home. You know, I think all those ideas of, of are they going too slowly, are they not at home, I think have now been taken over because we have molecular, we have histochemical and indeed we have ex vivo demonstrating that these hyperplastic polyps do have some of the features that we associate with colorectal neoplasia. So let's regard them of that but let's also understand that they don't rapidly progress to anything nasty and then we can understand why you get these lesions in serrated polyposis. You know in young people with lots of them and big ones we do worry about it. There may be different genetic changes at play there. But I think that's a nice way to try and understand uh, the way these lesions develop and, and why we manage them in the way we do. So to summarize, what you're saying is it's the things that matter is the, the number of serrated polyps and the size of them and yeah. the location of them. Those three things matter. It doesn't matter. matter whether the lesion is a serrated lesion or a hyperplastic polyp because it doesn't change the surveillance strategy. Uh, what is important is size. Location is important, really more for our understanding of the process rather than necessarily for the management of individual patients. Uh, interestingly, we've pretty much dropped now tubular, tubular villus and villus in terms of adenoma subtypes simply because the Interobserver variation between pathologists will will never agree. If you have three categories of anything you won't agree, change it to two and we'll start to agree. That's better. And so you two will know that in dysplasia in the gut now, we have two categories for every single thing. Well, interesting you say that, uh, Neil, because I was trained in the 
kudos classifications on my histopathology request form, I would write down tubular adenoma, tubular villus adenoma. And it's uncanny that the histopathologists will then look very careful to disprove me. So if I said TVA, they would inevitably say it's a TA. In your endoscopic images, you are looking at a three-dimensional image, uh, whereas we are looking at a two-dimensional image. So in terms of tubular villus versus tubular, how do you know that the things are either, you know, a test tube or a villus, you know, and, and, and that's where we all go wrong. Uh, and so I'm delighted to say that essentially uh, come the next bowel cancer screening pathology guidelines, out will go tubular, tubular villus and villus simply because it's of no clinical value, no clinical value for surveillance. And it's really important that we do that. But villus makes a little bit of a difference. If it's a villus adenoma, it's more likely to But absolutely, to but you know that. You could say, why don't we just call things villus and other uh, and we all know that pure villus tumors are relatively rare and, and i think if we did that there would be much better agreement between pathologists so we go back to the two categories rather than the three for the future yeah um, on the topic of serrated adenoma it's reasonably easy i think i need to remove everything which looks serrated which is 10 millimeter or bigger both in the left and the right but the thing that would make me a little bit more anxious would be if dysplasia is then reported histologically presumably that is the other feature which is of importance sure, absolutely and we all recognize that and we've got to start by saying there is again inevitable inter-observer variation between pathologists uh, and you could show you know some slightly funny looking sessile serrated lesions to 10 good gastrointestinal pathologists and five of them will say it's dysplastic and five of them won't so there's undoubted issues about that so no great surprise that particularly with adenomatous type dysplasia in SSLs, endoscopy can get a very good guide uh, to whether that's present. The problem is not all dysplasia in SSLs is adenomatous. There is much more subtle serrated type dysplasia. And there is also this disastrous terminology of minimal change dysplasia. And the minimal change is the poor pathologist doesn't see anything, but fire some uh, MLH1 immunohistochemistry on it, and it loses the MLH1, which, as we've already discussed, is a feature of advanced serrated neoplasia, a feature that occurs, you know, somewhere along the pathway towards cancer, uh, and presumably is, you know, not a good thing to have in a sessile serrated lesion. Uh, whereas morphologically, the pathologist can't see anything. So there are different types of dysplasia in serrated pathology. I find it hard to understand how uh, we already mentioned the BRAF mutations. So they, they're going along a different kind of cancerous pathway. But then you're saying it just kind of could jump and go down the KRAS path. It makes no the sense. The morphological and therefore probably the molecular heterogeneity within individual lesions causes huge problems. So we have the sessile serrated lesion. And then if you look at traditional serrated adenomas, which because the, the name is adenoma, we know is dysplastic by definition. If you look at those and look at them carefully, more than 50% of them by definition will have a serrated morphology. But then right in the middle of it, they'll show classical adenomatous type dysplasia as well. So why are we getting these different morphologies? And it, I, you know, perhaps demonstrates that that the morphology is not absolutely reflecting the the 
molecular changes that are occurring in those those uh, those lesions and well, we, we might both be out of a job in the future because AI is, is coming. My endoscopic image could be AI'd and they can find lesions and maybe even characterize lesions and say, that's a villus adenoma. Presumably the same thing is lurking around the corner for histopathology. I'm allowed at the age of 64 to be just a little bit cynical and say, I've now been in pathology for 40 years uh, and I've seen any number of false dawns. Why can't a machine do it better than the human brain? And it never could. I, I am slightly cynical because uh, there have been so many things have come and gone. Uh, and I'm still here 40 years on. Uh, th th my microscope is just here. I do 95% of all my work with a standard H&E stain, which we've had since, I don't know, the 1850s. The other thing, of course, we have is the ability to move images uh, from one place to another and, and report, not with a microscope, but with the computer. And that is all coming and that's coming quite strongly in the UK. I suppose one of the issues as well is, as you alluded to, if they only need to find, especially for serrated lesions, one serrated crypt, if you then map that to the AI, it's going to pick up that and find that crypt. And do you suddenly reclassify a whole host of polyps and what we want to do is track and see which ones are risky over a long period of time. And if we're yeah, changing yeah. definitions, that's to change how we yeah. treat these lesions and look yeah. at them long term. There's a lot still unknown on the topic of serrated polyps, isn't it? You, you mentioned serrated polyposa syndrome. And I found myself thinking serrated polyposa syndrome if I have a young patient with these big kind of plaque-like uh, SSLs, but also adenomatous You absolutely polyps. get a mixture of these different lesions. You know, I just wonder whether the contamination with acquired cases is is messing up the analyses. Uh, and therefore, you've got a mixture. You've got a, you've got, not only have got a mixture of different polyps, you've got a mixture uh, of, of acquired and inherited disease. Uh, perhaps if we just look at the, the ones you were saying, the young people, perhaps particularly those with a family history. But another interesting thing on that topic is that all the polyposal syndromes you mentioned, you get polyps throughout the GI tract. But in, in polyposal syndrome, you only get them in the colon. Which is odd, isn't it? You would have thought if it's yeah. genetic, why wouldn't you get them in the in If the it's stomach? a constitutional mutation, every cell in the body, uh, like in all those syndromes we talked about, every cell in the body has them. And that's why we recognize those extra intestinal manifestations in all of those. Uh, you know, one of the confounding things is I'm sure this admixture of, of acquired disease, uh, particularly, obviously, in the older patient. I believe you're a co-author of the BSG guidelines on serrated polyps. Then it says that we should refer our patients with possible serrated polyposal syndrome to the geneticists, which seems completely useless because the geneticists can't say anything because there is no there is no marker to go by. They can by. very cleverly look at family history. Uh, I think that's important, isn't it? Uh, and obviously these days on all colorectal cancers, whether they're serrated or not, we're now doing the microsatellite analyses because we recognize that otherwise we'll miss uh, cases of Lynch and particularly important diagnosis to make uh, and we can make it very easily on just with simple immunohistochemistry so we do that routinely now. But there's no way to look at a colorectal cancer and 
deduce that this particular colorectal cancer did arise from a serrated oh, oh, precursor? No, there's definite morphological clues. The cancers, many of those right-sided ones, they're mucinous. That doesn't necessarily mean it's serrated, but mucinous is, is good for it. Uh, they look serrated. But it's much more about the character of the cytoplasm uh, and the character of the nucleus. Uh, so uh, in terms of cancer, nuclei, as I'm sure you appreciate, get a bit wicked uh, and don't necessarily reflect that morphological change. So, so it's much about the cytoplasm. And you get this very pink change, which serrated pathology has. And you can look at for things like uh, a Crohn's-like infiltrate, so lymphoid aggregates. And all these things are really very characteristic of a serrated cancer. Uh, and then, particularly in the left-sided serrated cancers, uh, they're very poorly differentiated or can be very poorly differentiated. And you perhaps then lose the morphological features and then you're relying on on, on the molecular phenotype and uh, and other ways of, of judging whether or not it's, it's serrated. So, and also, of course, they're also associated with other serrated lesions. If one is really cynical, one would say, I don't need to do that immunistic chemistry. I don't need to do that PCR for MSI. Uh, I just need to look at the tumor and look for uh, female, right-sided, mucinous, Crohn's-like infiltrate, and particularly intratumoral lymphocytic infiltrate. So lymphocytes actually in the tumor. And those features highly characteristic of, of uh, MSIH or, or, or deficient mismatch repair, which, of course, as we've already said, is a feature of, of serrated carcinomas. And we try to think about it more and more and more. It's just making the procedure and then the histology more tailored to the person. Is this person going to die of colorectal cancer? Should I be taking off the polyp? But with the serrated polyps, it's even more important. If you've got a younger patient with lots of smaller polyps, we should be removing them. We should be cold snaring them and trying to clear them off. It becomes more complicated with colitis because there are hundreds of little white buttons throughout the colon with high definition chromoendoscopy. So I suppose one question I have is, should we take them all off, all these lesions? Are you happy to re receive them all? And should they be all just come in one polyp trap and one uh, gallipot together? Or should we really be mapping them throughout the colon? Because that's almost a, uh, a non-starter um, if there are so many polyps. But in, in these, we've had a couple of early cancers in colitis. What is the link you know, We recognise absolutely that, that serrated change will complicate ulcerative colitis and indeed Crohn's disease, but much more common uh, in ulcerative colitis. And we, and we recognise that. I would suggest we know, uh, the other thing to say, we definitely recognise a particular type of dysplasia in ulcerative colitis that is serrated. And indeed, we recognise the same in Barrett's esophagus. You definitely get a serrated type dysplasia in Barrett's esophagus. I mean, the other thing to say is there's no doubt you will see lesions that are probably just incidental hyperplastic polyps. Why not? You know, we, uh, and so in terms of current patient management, I don't think it changes very much. I think we identify these lesions, but I think we only change management if they're dysplastic. It's one thing that we see, which is really weird, is what may be secondary serration, that the epithelium looks serrated like it would in a hyperplastic polyp, 
But the actual lesion is something completely different. And it's a stromal polyp. And what we see, and particularly in sessile serrated lesions, but also in hyperplastic polyps, is, is we see a stromal proliferation which when you do all our fancy stains that we do tells you it's perineuriomatous so there is a tumor called a perineurioma that obviously is the cells around a nerve tantalizingly people are suggesting that this might be the same lesion that's differentiating in different ways which is you know sure we see that in horrible cancers that they can have both epithelial and sarcomatous differentiation but you know let's face it in cancers their genes are all over the place and hundreds and hundreds of mutations and stuff but we see it also in otherwise things that we would recognize as like like neurofibromas that we recognize are, are, are just you know benign stromal tumors and we see this serration and then perhaps the most tantalizing thing and i'd be interested in if you've seen this or any of the gastroenterologists who've been listening to this is there is this extraordinary relationship between sessile serrated lesions and lipomas. When we look at them, you have a lipoma and you have the SSL beautifully over the top of it. Uh, and there is some very tantalizing but not unproven evidence to suggest bizarrely that they may be the same lesion that's going epithelial one way and lipomatous the other way. Wow, how weird is that? Quite often when I remove adenomatous polyp from the right hemicolon in particular, the submucosa is very greasy. And I've had quite a lot of cases when the histopathologist wondering if there was an underlying uh, lipoma. And it's just the, the greasy uh, submucosa. There's no lipoma. Uh, yeah, we, you know, I, in support of what you say, we tend to see a bit more fat in the submucosa in the right colon uh, than elsewhere. I think the slight difference with the lesions that we're seeing associated with SSLs is that it's very circumscribed and looks like a lipoma uh, rather than just any old fad. Uh, but, you know, how do we differentiate that? Lipomas, you know, if you look at the cells, it looks like normal fat. And it's really all about does it look like a tumor that tells us it's a lipoma? So going back to our definitions and our diagnoses that we make pathologically, uh, what we've got five other, one, two, three, four, five. But the last one, the mixed polyp, it shouldn't be there. Complete dustbin. Uh, perhaps we should just say and collision polyp when we're convinced it's a collision. So when you say collision polyp, that simply is a hyperplastic polyp and an adenomatous polyp developing by chance next to each other right. and they bump exactly. into each that's, other. That's exactly it. And, I, and uh, you know, it's described in the literature, but it's a bit simplistic, isn't it? And surely if if a patient has a colonoscopy and has one polyp, we see two things next to each other. Surely that's the same lesion. So so uh, I, I don't deny that collision lesions can occur, but uh, I, I would suggest that most mixed polyps are not that. Is there anything I should do to make your job easier? You know, have you got any feedback yeah, for you me? You could really help us. Not what to biopsy, but what not to biopsy. Uh, please think about your biopsy practice and, you know, get rid of the thought that uh, uh, endoscopy is not complete without a biopsy. Never just biopsy the rectum for rectal bleeding. Uh, there's no indication for that. Only take random biopsies at colonoscopy in the right clinical circumstances of a middle-aged lady with chronic watery diarrhea, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, uh, the bigger deal for me and something that I'm really trying to hammer home uh, is gastric biopsies. Uh, you know, 
you see a bit of redness, you call it gastritis and you biopsy it. So I might call it collagenous gastritis. I might call it something really fancy. But what I want to know is how does that change the management of the patient? If, if my report that you receive, you know, three weeks after the endoscopy, if my report is not going to change the management of the patient, then why take the biopsy? Never biopsy the OGJ, the normal OGJ. Biopsy the normal OGJ uh, and 30% of patients will have intestinal metaplasia. And then you've no idea what to do. Do you call out Barrett's, you know, diddly diddly diddly. And so, you know, there are very clear guidelines, but people still do it. And of course, the payback is that no longer does the histopathology take a month to come back. We'll, we'll get us back pretty quickly now within, within we 10 days. Then we've got more time to concentrate on the things that are important. And uh, we wrote guidelines for the Royal College of Pathologists years and years ago, 2005. And people then did audits and demonstrated that they had actually reduced the histopathology workload for gastrointestinal disease by 40 to 50 percent. Earlier in the conversation, you didn't sound like you were convert for discard. You know, the, the concept that little polyps that doesn't matter if it's serrated or adenomatous, we're just going to remove them and discard them. They don't need histological analysis. Do you yeah, believe in this concept? You know, uh, I'm not a convert to it, but I can understand people saying, well, hang on, if site, if number, site and size are the most important factors, and let's face it, they are, you know, we have to say that. So that I can I get on the golf course every day, can I? Instead of just <laughs> just two days a week now. Yeah. You said, would you change anything else? And another thing I would change is I would change endoscopy reporting systems. So uh, endoscopic diagnosis of indeterminate colitis. I'm sorry, that's not an endoscopic diagnosis. That's a diagnosis that pathologists make on resection specimens. So that's just a good example. So we made this absolute recommendation. Can we have the endoscopy report every time and not the silly histology request form, it's called. That's really the only thing I want to know. What did the endoscopist see? That's what I want to know. Sure, I wanted to know why he or she did the endoscopy. That's quite important as well. I want to know what medication they're on. I want to know this, I want to know that. Most of the stuff, you don't have to look down the microscope. You know the diagnosis already from, from the data you're presented with. And in fact, polyps, you can, sounds terrible, but often you can diagnose them by just holding the slide up to the light. You don't need a microscope. <laughs> I remember having a conversation many years ago when I was called up to speak to a professor of histopathology here in Leeds who said, you know, Dr. Rembacken, as a registrar, we're not very, I'm not very pleased with your request forms. You see, here you wrote active colitis. That's, that's all wrong. You say red mucosa and I say active colitis. <laughs> <laughs> Now, thanks, Neil, for a brilliant discussion on much, much more than just serrated polyps. We finish our discussion on the on that shoreline between the sea of pathology which the endoscopist can diagnose and that landmass of what still requires the pathologist and his microscope. But, Neil, the sea level is rising and your island is shrinking. <laughs> now, be that as it may, thanks for listening, and I look forward to catching up with you again in a couple of weeks' time when we will discuss anal cancer. That's another pathology which we shouldn't miss at endoscopy. And thanks again to Pentax Medical for sponsoring our Endoscopy News podcast. Bye for now.